Welcome to Real World Enterprise Architecture. My name is Reggie. I make my living as an enterprise architect for a multinational corporation. And on this podcast, I discuss the practical ins and outs of enterprise architecture in the real world. Prior to the 21st century, I spent my time as an algorithm guy developing data processing algorithms that today we might call machine learning algorithms, developing mathematical models, and developing computer simulations. This was a pretty natural career path for me since I had a degree in math. It was work I enjoyed a lot. I never intended to be an enterprise architect. In fact, I never intended to be an architect at all. It just happened. Working in the world of applied math, algorithm development, and modeling and simulation exposed me to two things that would serve me well as an architect. And looking at things in hindsight, they probably had a lot to do with my becoming an architect. First, I was exposed to a lot of different programming languages. By my last count, I've coded in more than a dozen different languages. So I developed a really good understanding of what you could do with software, both the great potential and also the practical limitations. Now, look, I'm no professional software developer. I don't consider myself a developer at all, in fact. I guess I'm more like a shade tree mechanic, a do-it-yourself coder, if you will. Working in that world of mathematical modeling and computer simulation also exposed me to something else. When you work in the world of mathematical modeling and computer simulation, you have to see the big picture and the details, both at the same time. You don't have the luxury of focusing on a detailed piece of software while ignoring the big picture. And you don't have the luxury of working at the conceptual level while ignoring the mundane details. You have to understand the holistic nature of the thing you're modeling. You have to understand how it's put together and how it works. You have to understand its architecture. And you also have to understand the underlying physics of the process, both at the same time. And that turns out to be pretty good training for an architect. Anyway, I found myself creating models of distributed systems. For some reason, I just enjoyed it. Then I found myself working on bigger and bigger systems. I learned a lot about how these large-scale distributed systems work. I guess you could say I developed a feel for them. So it's probably natural that I started getting involved with designing them. And before I knew it, I was spending all my time architecting these systems and none of my time modeling them. I hadn't planned it. It had just happened. I'd become an architect. I'd returned to mathematical modeling and computer simulation from time to time over the years, but it would always be something of a side hustle that my management allowed me to do, something they tolerated when there was an important architecture work to be done. We're talking the late 90s here, the tail end of the 20th century, when it was clear to me and those around me that I'd become an architect. I didn't think of myself as an enterprise architect, mostly because I wasn't an enterprise architect. I was what we today would probably call a solution architect, but we didn't have those terms back then, so I just thought of myself as an architect. As we entered the first decade of the 21st century, architecture was becoming more and more structured, more and more rigorous, more and more of a specialized activity. In the last episode, I talked about how this had happened with enterprise architecture, but it was really happening to all of architecture. It was about this time, I guess, that my company did an assessment of projects we thought to be failures, or at least problematic enough to the point of requiring heroics to rescue them. And the one common denominator we always found was that these projects had poor architectures. 
so we turned up the gain on the architecture rigor. I embraced the rigor, I preached the rigor, I taught architecture classes, and I chastised projects for not following the rigor. After all, it was architecture rigor that would allow us to develop good architectures. In time, of course, it would come back to bite me in the ass. But we'll get to that. First, let's talk about what was happening in the enterprise. So, what exactly was happening in the enterprise technology landscape at this time? Well, this is a period I refer to as the heyday of the monolithic system. Recall that by the end of the 20th century, client-server computing was well established. So was the foothold of enterprise-class applications. These were very large applications, often mega-applications consisting of millions of lines of code. As I look back on things, I suspect it was a combination of UML with its rich set of models and the paradigm shift to object-oriented design that led to ever larger and more complex applications. Now, if these mega-applications were hard to design, they were nearly impossible to modify. The second-order effect of anything but the smallest change was anybody's guess. And that led to our applying even more architecture rigor. Architecture, after all, would surely be the answer to managing all this complexity. But it wasn't just the monolith that was creating a complexity problem. All these monoliths lived in silos, and we needed a way to connect the silos. So we did what switchboard operators in the 1930s did. We connected one application to another. We did this by modifying the applications on each end and allowing them to exchange data through a well-defined interface. That's fine when you have a few applications, but eventually you experience something called the n-squared problem. I'll spare you the math, but what you need to know is this. As the number of applications increases linearly, the number of interfaces increases exponentially. You can find the actual calculation in the show notes if you find that you just have to know. The n-square problem was the first real crack in the fundamental foundation of enterprise architecture. The result is the typical spaghetti diagram you see in all but the simplest of enterprises. But as early warning signs often go, we ignore them or explain them away or try to make them irrelevant. And we did all these things with the n-squared problem. Starting in the late 90s, a basic technological solution appeared on the landscape. It was called middleware. The purpose for middleware, which is still with us today and probably will be with us for a very long time because it solves a persistent problem in enterprise architecture. The purpose for middleware, put simply, is to serve as the glue between applications. Middleware is a special type of application that glues other applications together. There's nothing magical about middleware, it's just software that connects software. It's like replacing a bunch of individual roads running from one house to another with a series of local thoroughfares and freeways. We've called it by various names over the last 20 or 30 years. The Enterprise Application Integration Broker is a name that was in vogue until probably 2005 when service-oriented architectures became all the rage and with them enterprise service buses. Even today, as service-oriented architectures are giving way to microservices and event-driven architectures, and event-driven architectures are being supported by event streaming platforms, the concept of middleware hasn't disappeared. Sure, it's, it's morphed, but software still exists to connect software in one way or another. Glenn Donovan wrote a good article about the history of middleware. I put a link to it in the show notes. The middleware journey in the enterprise is a really important journey, an important aspect of computing in the enterprise, and it shaped the practice of enterprise architecture in a fundamental way. The introduction of middleware into the enterprise, first enterprise application brokers, then enterprise service buses, gave us a highway system in the enterprise. 
No more little informal dirt roads connecting one place to another. And that meant we needed to manage the rules of the road. And boy, did us architects eat this up. This is what we lived for. The introduction of middleware meant that we had a single place, a single physical place, the application integration broker, to manage all the interactions between applications. It was like our own little switchboard, a master switchboard for the enterprise, in fact. We could force all applications to use the broker. We could manage all the routings and formats by way of the application integration broker. And by way of the application integration broker, we could manage the enterprise. Granted, it was helpful to the application developers, too. It did have the effect of reducing the amount of glue code they needed to write. Well, sort of. Developers still had to write code to connect to the integration broker, which is, after all, just another application itself. On the upside, it reduced some of the housekeeping and business logic required for transforming the data from one application to another. But for us architects, the integration broker was pure gold. The integration broker was our application, our tool for managing the enterprise. It allowed us to construct complex mappings from one application to another. It allowed us to spend our time in a modeling tool. And finally, we could stop dealing with all the pesky people in the enterprise. All we really had to do was worry about interface modeling and mapping and transformation in a modeling tool. Then along came SOA, the service-oriented architecture paradigm, which came with its own flavor of middleware, the Enterprise Service Bus. Like so many things, SOA was supposed to be the silver bullet to eliminate the need for all future silver bullets. But of course, it didn't work that way. I'm not sure why we're surprised. There is no magic technology after all. All technological solutions fix problems while introducing other problems. I realize that sounds sort of cynical, and maybe it is a little. Technology can fix one problem, and hopefully the new problem is much smaller than the original problem. But sometimes a new problem is worse than the old problem. One of the problems SOA introduced was the need for standards governance. While integration brokers provided the plumbing, SOA had much greater ambitions. SOA would once and for all establish a set of standards against which all applications could be developed and which would allow integration to proceed in an orderly and efficient manner. The whole of the enterprise would be a set of services, managed services, which would of course comply with a set of governed standards, and who, I'm sure you're wondering, would define the laws that form the basis for this governance. Well, the enterprise architects, of course. For all SOA's goodness, and there was a lot of goodness in SOA, it provided an approach for architecting distributed systems across the entirety of the Internet, an approach we would call web services. The web services construct, and in fact the services construct in general, would be crucial as we started to move into cloud computing. SOA would also lead to the later concept of microservices, which would provide a way to architect systems using small containerized chunks of capabilities. You know, I always find it funny when architects or developers or managers or anybody for that matter talks about SOA like some sort of horse and buggy technology and microservices like the newer, hipper, better way to do things. Look, I don't care what anybody tells you, microservices are not conceptually different. They're just the natural evolution of SOA. There was a lot of goodness in SOA. It shifted the enterprise architecture paradigm in a major way. But for all its goodness, SOA had the effect of driving us even higher into our ivory towers. It allowed us to sit in our ivory towers and decompose the enterprise into a set of abstract services. 
It allowed us to sit in our ivory towers and define standards for governing application development and integration. It allowed us to sit in our ivory towers and model to our heart's content. SOA allowed us to see the world as a series of straight lines that fit neatly onto a piece of digital paper. And it allowed us to avoid the inherent messiness of the real world, the enterprise that actually exists outside the ivory tower. What we missed as enterprise architects was that SOA wasn't the thing that would further entrench the need for enterprise architecture rigor, because I think that's how a lot of us saw it. And that includes yours truly, by the way. I saw it the same way I think many other architects saw it. To us, SOA was more evidence for what we saw as increasing order and stability and the increasing need for rigorous enterprise architecture practices. What we missed as enterprise architects was that SOA was an inflection point that would lead to the upending of enterprise architecture as we knew it. But of course, we couldn't see it then. As we looked at the world in 2005, what we saw was a real need for enterprise architecture. Disciplined, rigorous, artifact-driven enterprise architecture. We taught architects to think of the world in a highly structured and linear way. Now, granted, we may not have used those terms, but that is how we saw it. We taught architects to think of the problem in terms of architecture rules and architecture models and architecture frameworks. We taught them to establish governance boards to make sure that all the crazy developers out there in the enterprise wildlands didn't deviate from the architecture. And look, I was personally part of this we I'm talking about here. We established ourselves as the gatekeepers of the enterprise, and we guarded the gates against the unruly likes of our sworn enemies, the Agilistas. I didn't know it at the time, but my perfect little architecture world was about to change. In 2007, I was summarily assigned to a project that would rock my world and forever change the way I saw enterprise architecture. Now, when I say I was summarily assigned, that's exactly what I mean, but I should probably explain. I'd heard about the project for the better part of a year. I knew they were struggling. I also knew why, or so I thought. We were a company that practiced and cherished the tried and true methods of traditional waterfall development and traditional architecture. And here was this rogue project that had become infatuated with agile development. No wonder they were having problems. This was a big project, and I mean big. What the hell were they doing flirting with agile? Now, this wasn't my first encounter with agile development. I'd encountered Agile in its early days as something called extreme programming. Most people just call it XP. I encountered XP shortly after Martin Fowler had led the development of the Agile Manifesto. I understood its value for small projects in which the underlying architecture was well established. I'd seen it work well in those cases, but this project was different. It was a very large enterprise-level transformation project, and it had no real architecture to speak of, and that, I was convinced, was their problem. I was partly right. Anyway, I had been asked to take over as chief architect of the project on multiple occasions. I'd always said, no thank you. Just because I knew what their problem was didn't mean I could fix it. But as the pressure mounted for me to take the job, I'd asked them if they were willing to ditch Agile and do it the right way. Their answer was always that the customer wanted to do Agile and that was that. I'd need to find a way to make it work. I always said I didn't think it could work and so no thank you. Well, I guess my management had had enough of the struggles the project was experiencing and enough of my resistance. I was told in no uncertain terms I could either take over as chief architect or I could go work for another company. 
And you know what? That really clarified things for me. So I took over as chief architect. That project was my first experience with the true collision of these two cultures, agile and traditional architecture. You see, I no longer had the luxury of keeping the agilistas outside the gates. They'd already cleared the moat and knocked down the castle gates. They were inside the castle. They were everywhere. Keeping them out was not an option. But there was also the little problem of architecture, namely that they didn't have one. They were just coating their asses off, developing what they thought made sense, in a way they thought made sense. But they needed an architecture that much was clear. I believed it then, and I still believe it today, agile development won't work without some architectural structure. But look, architectural structure is not the same as architecture-driven. I'd come from the old school, where you started with requirements and developed an architecture and developed everything, and I mean everything around that architecture. That wasn't an option here. Not on this project. The developers were coming up with good features, things that were valuable to the users, making it up as they went. My task was to find a way to inject some architectural structure into the process. I did this by finding a way for the two efforts, architecture and agile development, to proceed in parallel. Developers continued to identify necessary software features, working hand-in-hand with the users of those features, while architects established a necessary architectural structure for agile development to proceed. I had to strike a balance between agility and predefined structure. I knew the developers would need to win a few fights, and the architects would also need to win a few fights. So sometimes I let the developers drive the architecture, and sometimes I let the architects drive development. It was a compromise that I'd struck out of necessity, and it was an approach that would forever change the way I viewed architecture. My views as an architect had changed, and I could see the writing on the wall. But most of the enterprise architecture world hadn't yet come to terms with the eventuality. In the end, it didn't matter because a perfect storm was brewing on the horizon, and the world of enterprise architecture was in for some hard times. You know you're having an existential crisis when you start spending your time defending the value you provide. And that's exactly what was happening to enterprise architects starting about 10 years ago. I distinctly remember when I knew for sure we were in such a crisis in the area of enterprise architecture. In fact, I would say the crisis applies to all of architecture and not just enterprise architecture. I was attending a big meeting of all the architects in my company. We'd done this gathering for several years. Every year we'd meet in Denver, Colorado and discuss our work. What we were working on, how we were doing our work, tools and techniques we were using, the architectures of various projects we were working on, things we'd learned, and things that concerned us. It was a great meeting, and I looked forward to it every year. I got to connect with my colleagues, fellow architects, people I'd known for years, and people I call my friends. But the meeting in 2012 had a bit of a different feel to it. I could tell the architects were struggling with things going on. It felt like a bunch of parents getting together after attending years of soccer games together watching their children grow up from the bumblebee soccer of six-year-olds through the prime years when the kids started getting better, but as parents we still had control, and on to the high school years when the kids looked like they were trying to kill each other and the parents were told to mind their own business, to the last high school season when we had to face the reality that the gig was coming to an end. That's really what it felt like. It's like the architects were starting to lament their increasing irrelevance and grasping at how to stop it. We discussed how we needed to better communicate the value of architecture. We discussed what would happen to our projects if we didn't turn things around. 
and I really think it was an honest concern for the fate of the projects rather than some sort of selfish motive of protecting our own jobs. There's always people out there who are fundamentally concerned with their own jobs above everything else. They're not usually insightful enough to pick up on an early indicator that something is off. Anyway, that's where we were about a decade ago. As enterprise architects, we were starting to feel the carpet moving beneath our feet. And if we didn't do something about it, it would be ripped from beneath us. And we might not be able to put it back. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of having conversations about the value of enterprise architecture. I mean, data scientists don't talk about the value of data science. It's pretty self-evident. Just like Python programmers don't talk about the value of Python programming and technical leads don't talk about the need for technical leadership. And over the last decade, the problem's only gotten worse. Colleagues I talk to often tell me that enterprise architecture has an image problem. I don't agree. Enterprise architecture doesn't just have an image problem. Enterprise architecture is in the midst of a full-on existential crisis. At a time when enterprises need us most, when the technology landscape is changing at an accelerating clip, when business is changing even faster, and when the volume and importance of data is growing fastest of all, when enterprises all over the world are literally screaming for somebody to help them with aligning it all in a way that provides real, tangible business value, enterprise architects are failing to show up. So how did this happen and what do we do about it? Well, it didn't happen overnight, that's for sure. It's been brewing for the better part of 15 years. That's about when I would say the key disruptions started to happen. I've already talked about the importance of service-oriented architecture as an inflection point. But it's worth mentioning again, because it was a real double-edged sword for enterprise architects. So it was the kind of thing that seemed like it could be a real boon for enterprise architecture. The kind of thing that could cement our role as high priests of the enterprise. But so it had another side too, an extremely disruptive side in fact, which wasn't immediately apparent, at least not in the way enterprise architects had hoped it would be. SOA, as a term, really wasn't on anybody's lips before about 2003. But by 2007, it was all the rage. In fact, I worked on a program where the customer wanted a service-oriented architecture. Of course, they had no real idea what it was, only that it was the new thing and they wanted it. SOA was the silver bullet, as I said earlier, that would eliminate the need for all future silver bullets. It wasn't even a good solution for the problems a project faced that, I'm, that I was talking about. But it didn't matter, so it had arrived. It was like what people say about the month of March. It had blown in like a lion and out like a lamb. And by the time the lamb had finally wandered off, it had laid the foundation for the success of some truly disruptive forces. Cloud, Agile, and DevOps. So it didn't create these things. It didn't even lead to them. But the paradigm shift to services laid the groundwork for their success. Cloud arrived on the scene about the same time SOA was experiencing its red carpet moment. Amazon was in the web-based retail services business, but they'd figured out a way to manage their computing infrastructure in a way that allowed them to use their computing capacity much more efficiently. So why not sell infrastructure as a service? This was a totally new concept. In 2006, Amazon launched Amazon Web Services and its platform, the Elastic Compute Cloud, or EC2 which allowed customers to rent infrastructure services, paying only for what they needed, when they needed it, and just as importantly, if not more, making the creation of an entire data center a trivial and nearly instantaneous task. Developers no longer needed to ask enterprise architects for a server. 
They no longer needed to wait for weeks or months for approval and provisioning of the computing resources they needed. All they needed was an internet connection and a credit card. Not to be outdone, Google followed suit two years later. In 2008, they introduced a beta version of the Google App Engine, which would eventually become the Google Cloud Platform. Microsoft could see where things were going, so in true Microsoft fashion, they immediately announced their own cloud offering, Azure, even though it wouldn't be available for another two years. 2010 was when Microsoft released Azure. IBM announced its own cloud offering, the IBM Smart Cloud, in 2011, and Oracle followed suit with the Oracle Cloud in 2012. So, within a mere six years, the enterprise computing landscape had been fundamentally disrupted. The disruption would continue to build momentum over the next decade. Cloud computing is not just an interesting technology, it's now the dominant computing model. And while its success didn't necessarily depend on SOA, the services paradigm did add fuel to the fire. With SOA, the location of the service didn't matter, and cloud computing leveraged that lack of location awareness to its fullest potential. The combination of SOA and cloud meant that a service, and let's just go ahead and call it a microservice, because contrary to popular belief, microservices really just are a natural evolution, simplification, and a refinement of a service under the SOA umbrella. Anyway, the combination of SOA and cloud meant that a service could be imagined after the Architecture Governance Board on Tuesday and running by the end of the week, before the next Architecture Governance Board could stop it. Forget about all the architecture modeling and frameworks. In the blink of an eye, the service is imagined and built. Enterprise architecture had been fundamentally and forever disrupted. And that wasn't the end of it either. Two other disruptions were bubbling to the surface about the same time, Agile development and DevOps. Agile is mainstream now, but at the dawn of the 21st century, it was nothing more than a twinkle in the eye of people who'd become frustrated with the waterfall model of software development. Now, just to make sure we're all in the same sheet here, the waterfall model for software development is based on a linear, stepwise process that starts with gathering requirements, proceeds to architectural design, then detailed software design, then implementation, then several levels of testing and ultimately leads to deployment of the software months later or sometimes even years in the case of very large and complex monolithic projects. There are three basic problems with the waterfall model. First, it presumes that the needs of the enterprise are well understood and just need to be documented, hence the reference to gathering requirements. Secondly, it presumes that design flows naturally from requirements. In fact, it presumes, albeit implicitly, that we can fully comprehend the combined effect all software features will have on the enterprise. And in reality, we can't. Finally, and perhaps most importantly of all, it takes entirely too long for the waterfall process to play out. By the time we get done, the technology landscape has often changed, and the business need has also changed, which all too often invalidates the basic requirements, meaning the whole process has to be repeated with similar results. The Agilistas, as many enterprise architects refer to the Agile evangelists, understood this basic problem, and in 2001, a group of them gathered at a ski resort just outside Salt Lake City, Utah, and penned what would become known as the Agile Manifesto. The Agile Manifesto leaned against everything the waterfall model stood for. The Manifesto can be summarized with four core value statements, which I'm sure most of you understand very well, but I'll repeat them because it's important to remember. Individuals and interactions over processes and tools. Working software over comprehensive documentation. Customer collaboration over contract negotiation. 
and responding to change over following a plan. For enterprise architects, agile development is pure kryptonite. It leans against everything we believe, everything we've been taught, and more than any other development, almost single-handedly created the existential crisis for enterprise architects. By 2005, Agile was picking up significant steam, and by 2010, it was unstoppable as a shift in software development, like an avalanche racing down a mountain that would cover everything in its sight by 2020. And if Agile development would change the software development paradigm, DevOps would supercharge the whole process. Where Agile had disrupted the waterfall development model and made it possible for us to iteratively develop applications in small, useful chunks without going through exhaustively detailed and time-consuming upfront definition, planning, and design, it still hadn't solved the clunkiness that existed between developers and the IT operations teams that deployed and managed applications. That clunkiness resulted in a lot of going back and forth between developers and ops teams, and it wasted a lot of time. Then about 10 years ago, that started to change as developers and ops teams started working more closely together, resulting in what we call DevOps. But DevOps wasn't just a communication or coordination thing. It fundamentally changed the landscape in which coordination happened, automating it to a degree that had never really been done before. And before long, a deployment that had previously taken days or weeks could be done in seconds or minutes. The combination of Agile and DevOps gave us the ability to come up with an idea in the morning, deploy a working solution by the end of the day, and iterate on it day by day until users got exactly what they wanted. So let's summarize what happened over the period of two decades. As we rolled into the 21st century, enterprise architecture had become more rigorous, more time-consuming, more artifact-driven, and as a result, we receded deeper into our own musings and climbed ever higher into our ivory towers. And as SOA entered the scene in the first three or four years of the 21st century, and especially with the introduction of the Enterprise Service Bus, which we as enterprise architects saw as our master controller of all enterprise applications, we convinced ourselves that our role as high priest of the enterprise was only gaining traction. But it wasn't, because what we didn't see was that SOA was an inflection point of a drastically different enterprise technology landscape where SOA would eventually evolve into highly decoupled microservices, which reduced the complexity of building applications. The evolution of cloud computing made the move to microservices possible. The microservices paradigm really wouldn't have been possible without cloud computing due to pure economic considerations. The combination of SOA vis-a-vis -vis microservices and cloud computing fundamentally changed the enterprise computing paradigm, shifting it to a more federated, more distributed, more organic model. The introduction of Agile and DevOps practices meant that we didn't need to exhaustively analyze every atom on the head of a pin before we delivered something useful to the enterprise. We could rapidly iterate on problems and solutions, coming up with an idea in the morning and deploying it by the afternoon. These forces combined to create an existential crisis for enterprise architecture, and that's where we are today, in the middle of an existential crisis. Still, I'm hopeful. Without the involvement of skilled enterprise architects, the enterprise will devolve into chaos. I'm convinced of that. But with our involvement, hands-on involvement that is, not from our ivory towers but in the wild lands where decisions are being made on a daily basis, we can have a positive effect. If developers and ops teams can come together, so too can the architects. And if we accept our new role, not as high priests of the enterprise, but as equal partners, the future of enterprise architecture just might be a bright one. So stop lamenting about what might have been. Embrace the reality you have, not the one you wish you had. Get out there and be part of the solution. 
and have yourself a good day. And don't forget, people are people and the world is a messy place. So go have some fun getting dirty in the real world.